Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book The Death and Life of Great American Cities. From New York to Chicago to Los Angeles, these big American cities have experienced a century of significant changes, recovering from the Great Depression and other economic crises time and time again. Many people thus believe that big cities will spontaneously flourish for eternity. However, it is important not to forget what happened to Detroit. Detroit once was the fourth largest city in America. In 2013, the city became the biggest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy protection. So, what are the factors that determine the prosperity and decline of big cities? The death and life of great American cities will give you the answer. The author of this book is Jane Jacobs. She had worked as a reporter, stenographer, and freelance writer before she worked as an assistant editor of Architecture Forum. When she was responsible for reporting urban renewal projects, Jacobs gradually became skeptical about the traditional concept of city planning. She wrote this book in 1961 and published it with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation. Since then, her works began to extend into other fields, such as economy, ethics, and social relations. She published many books, which made her one of the most influential urbanists. Jane Jacobs never studied urban planning in school and didn't even receive a college degree. However, after she carefully observed the operation and rules of big cities, she concluded that vibrant cities have the following features. Mixed primary uses of districts, short and uninterrupted streets, new buildings mixed with old buildings, and a high-density population. In her views, good cities automatically produce a complex ballet, which shows the vitality of big cities. Nevertheless, these views were contrary to the popular city planning theories at that time. According to traditional urban planning and renewal theories, big cities are considered enlarged small towns. Big cities are divided by function during planning and then combined. Such practices actually undermine the functions of a city as a whole. This book denounced such theories and provided new ideas and principles for the construction of big cities. After its publication, this book quickly sparked controversy. Many regarded it as a mark of the turning point in the history of city planning in the United States. As a consequence, the planning industry re-examined the planning theories which existed at that time. Now, many ideas and principles mentioned in this book have since become the content of urban planning textbooks in Western countries, and the generally accepted norms among architects and planners. This has then affected the direction of development of city planning in the United States and even in the world. In this bookie, we will extract the key points from this book through the following three parts. Part 1, Characteristics of and Diversity Within Big Cities. Part 2, Forces of Decline and Renewal. Part 3, Tactics to Revitalize Big Cities. In Part 1, we will explore the use of sidewalks, neighborhood gardens, and city neighborhoods. Jacob explained why big cities are entities of mixed uses, and why diversity is the most important natural feature of big cities. First, let us learn about the use of sidewalks. Apart from its basic function of being a space for passage, sidewalks offer functions of maintaining safety, 
social contact, and assimilating children to social norms. Unlike residents in small towns or suburbs, people living in big cities see numerous strangers every day. A person must feel safe when they walk on the street among strangers, having confidence that these strangers do not pose a threat to their life. Feeling safe should be a basic feature of a well-planned city. Maintaining the safety of the city is the fundamental task of a city's streets and sidewalks. However, when speaking about maintaining safety in a city space, most people believe that it is the job of the police. However, a public surveillance network is in fact more effective. This public surveillance network is set up by providing sufficient public places, such as business venues, squares, shops and restaurants that are open at night. Such places should be arranged next to sidewalks, giving people a reason to walk on the sidewalk. No matter if it is day or night, people come and go on the street. Residents thus also became watchers of the streets where they live and pass by on. If someone commits a crime on such a public street, they highly risk exposure. As a result, violence becomes less likely to occur on streets where shopkeepers and small business owners are strong supporters of peace and order. They are thus watchers of the street and guardians of the sidewalk. Once, Jacob saw a harrowing incident on the street. From her window, she saw a man trying to drag away a girl no older than eight or nine years old. The girl was resisting his pull. It looked as if the man was coaxing the girl while pretending that he was indifferent to her. Shopkeepers and residents nearby also noticed the scene. Soon the butcher, the locksmith, the fruit man, the laundry owner, and other people on the street came and surrounded the man, all wanting to save the little girl. Nevertheless, it turned out that the man was the girl's father. Regardless of the conclusion of the event, it proved that such a surveillance network is more effective than the police. Moreover, shops and small businesses alongside sidewalks offer another function, that is social contact. Even in big cities, people have a private sphere. You do not have to open the door to welcome guests if you are reluctant to do so. On the other hand, people want to associate with other people, especially those they do not know. Viewed from different perspectives, contact among people in the city is beneficial and interesting. Urban residents need a regular channel for public contact, and social contact on the sidewalk provides exactly such an opportunity. Based on mutual trust, there are plentiful trivial moments of public contact that happen on the sidewalk, for example, buying a newspaper, drinking a cup of coffee in a cafe, and bargaining with customers. To a certain extent, all these activities are a form of social contact. Shopkeepers have become a crucial part of social contact on the sidewalk, because they spread interesting information and provide supplementary services to urban residents. They even act as friendly matchmakers for residents who have similar hobbies. When it comes to social contact on the sidewalk, they are what Jacobs called public characters. The social channels provided by public characters are hard to find in rigidly planned communities. Though these communities have their own clubs, due to the lack of public life, residents have to build contacts through their own endeavor and try to find any activity through which they can interact with neighbors. Therefore, people need to make great efforts in order to establish points of social contact. Otherwise, effective social contact would not exist. Further, 
Shop clerks of business centers planned in a conventional manner are too busy handling a large number of customers to perform their public social function. Now, let's talk about how the sidewalk assimilates children into society. Here, assimilating means that children learn public responsibility from adults. Jacobs thinks that more often than not, such a sense of responsibility is learned from ordinary people walking on city sidewalks. Adults tell people who lost their way the right direction, and tell a car owner where to park his car to avoid being fined. Children imitate and learn lessons from every move adults do. Some people thus shoulder public responsibility for children, even though they are neither their relatives nor family friends. In such a way, children learn from them how to shoulder public responsibility. In the book, Jacob speaks of her son who is a beneficiary of social responsibility shouldered by others. One day, a locksmith warned him not to run onto the road. Through this interaction, her son learned a lesson about keeping safe and obeying the law. He also realized the responsibility his neighbor shouldered for him, though this neighbor has no ties with him whatsoever. After learning the use of the sidewalk, let us learn about the function of neighborhood parks. Neighborhood parks can harmoniously connect the diverse functions of the surrounding areas. During this process, neighborhood parks not only add to the diversity of a city, but also give something back to their surroundings the surrounding environment. How big a role the park can play depends on how many people use it. Users of the park mainly come from adjacent buildings. Generally speaking, the more diverse the surrounding buildings are, the more users the park will have. In a single day, the park will welcome office workers, students, housewives, and wandering older people at different times, because their daily schedules are different. Only in this way can the neighborhood park be used to the greatest extent. Then, let us see the use of city neighborhoods. Jacobs thinks that city neighborhoods can be considered an organ of self-government. There are three types of functional neighborhoods, namely the city as a whole, city blocks, and districts of large cities. These three types of neighborhoods have different functions, but they supplement each other in a multifaceted way. The city as a whole is the source of public funds. It is also where administrative and policy decisions are made. The most useful asset of a city is its wholeness. It brings together all people with common interests. City blocks have functions, such as maintaining safety, social contact, and assimilating children. Apart from that, they play a crucial role in self-government. It must be able to effectively find help when it comes to problems it cannot solve on its own. As a matter of fact, the success of these blocks depends on how well they overlap and interweave with each other. It also depends on how they help each other overcome social difficulties. The city block is weak politically, and the city as a whole is much more powerful in this aspect. The main function of the district neighborhood is to coordinate the relationship between the two. The aforesaid is the description of uses of sidewalks, neighborhood parks, and city neighborhoods. From these descriptions, we can see that a city is comprised of different parts. Each part displays infinite diversity. Therefore, diversity is natural to big cities. Meanwhile, the uses of each part is intertwined with each other and does not function individually. However, in the past, city planners would analyze the uses of a city part separately and subsequently tie them together. They would never consider how the uses of different parts of a city interact with each other. 
such a planning method led to many cases of failure. While wasting resources and money, it brings hidden dangers leading to the decay of a city. Therefore, Jacobs proposed that in order to generate a rich diversity in a city and effectively allocate resources, the following four conditions should be satisfied. First, a district should have mixed primary uses to maintain a sufficient flow of people coming and leaving the district. Second, most street blocks should be short. Third, a district should have various kinds of buildings. Such buildings vary in type, use, condition and age. They must mingle together fairly evenly. At last, the population should be sufficiently dense, whether they are residents or visitors. Diversity can be generated in a city only when the aforementioned four conditions are combined. Though different districts possess different characteristics and forms of diversity, the absence of any of these conditions will hinder the potential of a district. Let us now look deeper at the four conditions. The first is the need for mixed primary uses. Usually, people use the streets at different times. So the primary use of the street should be diverse. People are attracted to a particular place because of its primary use, such as office buildings, a plant, and residential buildings. However, the primary use can only create a flow of people during a certain time frame. For example, people are concentrated in office areas when they go to work, have lunch, and get off work, while people using recreational facilities show up at night and weekends. If a space has office buildings and recreational facilities as well, People will come there during the daytime, nighttime, business days, and weekends. The downtown tip of Manhattan, New York, is an example of the opposite. This district also includes Wall Street. Though around 400,000 people work there, its restaurant and retail industry used to be underdeveloped. Customers visited these shops for only 2 or 3 hours a day, which is about 10 or 15 hours a week. After business hours and on weekends, the district was similar to a ghost town. Jacobs thought that scenic spots, cinemas, and opera houses should be established to change such a situation. Judging from what we see today, this suggestion was very wise and useful. Nowadays, Manhattan is a large tourist attraction and is truly a city that never sleeps. Next, let us see the second condition, that is the need for small blocks. Long streets separate pedestrians from business owners, whereas short streets allow pedestrians to easily turn corners. Short streets not only provide convenience and freedom to pedestrians, but also might help increase the number of shops. If a street is too long, an extra street can be built to cut across it. Thus, the long street will become less dull. For example, in New York, the Rockefeller Center is a landmark building. It occupies three long east-west blocks between 5th and 6th Avenue. However, a new north-south street was built inside Rockefeller Center. This street is very plain, but it greatly improved the connection and fluidity of streets in the neighborhood, making the long street no longer as depressing. In contrast, 47th Street next to Rockefeller Center is a self-isolated street. People who are passing through 47th and 48th Street are so isolated that it feels seemingly impossible to reach another street. The need for small blocks is easy to understand. Now, let us learn about the third condition to create diversity in a city, that is the need for buildings with various ages and states of repair. 
A city that has a mixture of high, medium, low and no yield enterprises indicates that it's a city with sufficient diversity. This is because the capacity of these various type of enterprises to bear building costs are different. Normally, the cost of new buildings is higher. Therefore, various types of buildings are needed to meet the demand of different types of enterprises. A district where new buildings are mixed with old buildings provides opportunities to different people and enterprises. People with different preferences and enterprises with different goals can exist and develop on the same soil. Of course, old buildings inevitably have their own disadvantages that come with their aging process. However, that doesn't mean that over time a district with old buildings will definitely become dilapidated and poverty-stricken. If a district is decaying, it is rather because successful enterprises do not make enough investments there, leading to the failure to rebuild and renovate the buildings in the district. At last, let us see the fourth condition for city diversity the need for density. According to the conventional planning theory, high-density buildings are considered the cause of various problems and failures. In various city planning documents, only crowded slums are identified as having high-density residential areas. However, through her observations, Jacobs found that many successful districts are also dense with high dwellings. There are at least 100 residential units per acre of land. Such districts include Telegraph Hill just on the North Beach streets of San Francisco, Rittenhouse Square of Philadelphia, Brooklyn Heights of New York, North Ends of Boston, as well as Greenwich Village where Jacobs lives. In contrast, many slums are in fact low-density residential areas that look dreary. Such slums include those in Oakland, Cleveland, Detroit as well as East Bronx of New York. A large population is the source of vitality of a city. They activate the diversity of city life. However, that doesn't mean that a sufficient population alone can generate diversity. The sufficient population should be combined with the three conditions mentioned before, namely mixed primary uses, small blocks, and buildings with various ages. All four conditions are necessary to activate the vitality of a city district. Alright, that was it for part one. Let's do a quick summary. Through the above description, we understood the use of sidewalks, neighborhood parks, and city neighborhoods. We also learned that diversity is an important feature of big cities. Diversity is embodied by people's demand for various basic facilities. Four conditions are necessary to generate the diversity and vitality of big cities. Mixed primary uses, small blocks, combination of old and new buildings, and the high population density. Next, let us see how a city declines and renews. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now. Dir hat dieser Podcast gefallen? Dann klicke jetzt auf Abonnieren und empfehle ihn weiter. Bleib immer auf dem Laufenden und folge uns bei Twitter, Instagram und Facebook. Mehr Podcasts findest du auf meinpodcast.de.